Welcome to the Proteomics in Proximity podcast, where your co-hosts, Cindy Lawley and Sarantis Klamidas from Olink Proteomics, talk about the intersection of proteomics with genomics for drug target discovery, the application of proteomics to reveal disease biomarkers, and current trends in using proteomics to unlock biological mechanisms. Here we have your hosts, Cindy and Sarantis. Hey, everyone. Hello and welcome back to Proteomics in Proximity. Thanks to our 11 listeners, uh, Sam, Ray, Carolina, others. We're grateful for your attention and your feedback. And our listeners have given us some valuable feedback over time, and they've found us through different social media avenues. But to make that easier, uh, we're announcing that we've got actually an email address now. So we'll put this into the show notes, but it's just, uh, PIP for proteomics in proximity at olink.com. And, uh, and we'd be happy to hear from you around suggestions you have or any, um, interview recommendations you might have. And with that, uh, today we are talking to Evan Mills. Evan, I'll let him introduce himself, but he is, uh, an illustrious pharma executive here actually at Olink, and we're excited to talk to him about how pharma are finding proteomics super relevant on many different levels. So with that, let's uh, let's get on with it. Hey, Sarantis, how are you? Hello, I'm fine. Thank you, Cindy. Welcome, Evan. Looking forward, looking forward to, great to hear from you, all of the great news. Likewise, uh, good afternoon, Sarantis. Good early morning to you, Cindy, on the West <laughs> a Coast. dark over here. Uh, <laughs> Little dark, but that's all right. No, I'm I'm really honored to be uh, to be here. I've been wanting to uh, talk about how proteomics and, and the pharmaceutical industry are are, are uh, aligning for really exciting things. So very awesome. happy. To be Can here. you give us just a little background on your history in this in this area? You yeah. you've been in this for a while. I have, I have. So uh, I was a bench scientist, really, you know, passionate about oncology and neuroscience research. I did some work at Yale University for a while. And then I got into the uh, sales commercial side of this world, started actually in the pharmaceutical sales industry, which uh, was exciting because of the opportunity to help patients, right? But my real passion was in the science. And about a decade ago, there was a very innovative uh, proteomics company that caught my attention. And that's where I started this journey where I've now been at Olink for over five years. And uh, yeah, supporting the most innovative, ambitious researchers in this multi-omics space has just been a phenomenal journey. So my background is I love science. I want to help people. I want to have some sort of translational impact um, with the work I do. And right now at this moment, there's never been more momentum in that direction. It's really, really yeah, exciting. Yeah, very exciting. We just had uh, here... Uh, at Olink, three pretty exciting nature papers uh, come out in, in um, I think it's the online October 4th, but the print journal October 11th with a beautiful frog on the cover. It's uh, <laughs> it's an exciting time with those three papers. So those include a lot of applications around why pharma would invest in proteomics. So I'd love to get your thoughts on why? Why did 13 Pharma come together, invest in proteomics? What's the outcome? What's the result that they see out of it? 
Yeah, I mean, that's been a, a real career highlight is being able to be involved in that project from its inception. And, you know, Cindy, with your background in, in genetics, right, there, there was a previously formed consortium around whole exome sequencing in the UK Biobank and then eventually whole genome sequencing. But there was this idea, and I was having lunch um, outside of a, of a Harvard uh, symposium with uh, Dr. Chris Whalen, very smart geneticist who was at Biogen at the time. He's now at Janssen. And he just asked the question, he's like, hey, we're thinking about what makes sense to do next. We have all this richness in the genomic data, but we want to do something closer to phenotype. Would it even be conceivable for Olink to run 50,000 samples? And this is before, you know, some of the innovation that would have made that possible. And we said, yeah, I think we can do that. I think we can get there. I think we can do that. So it was just born out of curiosity and, and the desire to get closer to phenotype. So the goal really of this ambitious project was, can we both better understand drug targets that have causal links to disease? And can we simultaneously find biomarkers to help the drug development process? Because obviously with proteomics, you can do both, right? It can act as a bit of a filter to tell you which of these genomic disease associations have a plausible biological story and which ones should be pursued and which ones should perhaps be killed. But simultaneously, you can develop a suite of tools uh, to determine risk based on proteomics, to determine disease progression based on proteomics, and to discover biomarkers, which uh, are obviously always desired to aid clinical development. So, I mean, we're just starting to see all the publications. We're starting to understand all the utility that's going to come from this data set. Um, and it was, it was just such an ambitious, smart idea by Chris and then eventually Melissa and Lyndon and Brad, the countless others uh, who, who contributed to the product, to the project. And I'm going back to this journey. That's amazing journey. How is your difficult was to convince the genomics community because you mentioned it was like a heavy genomics community, right? Change the mindset in a way that, okay, all the proteomics can kind of value. How easy or difficult was this, this process? It's really hard. <laughs> I think it is, I think it was really hard because if you just think about the tools one would need to develop to measure, right? Our DNA is very nicely organized into a helical structure. There's four bases to measure and Illumina and others now have developed amazing tools that can measure that at scale. Think about the proteome, yeah. right? There's 20 amino acids. They combine in a myriad of different ways. I mean, it just is such a formidable challenge that geneticists would say, I'm not so sure, right? Yeah. I'm not so sure the tools exist. And oh, by the way, yeah, we can measure everything with, with genomics. We can measure everything. And you're approaching us with something that measures 1500 at the time, yeah. right? Huh. And then 3000 of what people assume would be maybe 20,000 proteins that you could try to capture in plasma serum. I mean, that, that, that there's a big debate about that. Um, so it was challenging, but the obvious central dogma of being closer to disease and things that are reflective of real time biology versus your blueprint of your biology was compelling enough for them to give it a shot, but it was not easy. So you must have focused on what is the, the near-term return on investment for pharma for running a proteomics project. And I, I would consider this UK Biobank sort of PQTL, developing therapeutic targets, all of the 
all of those things you've already mentioned is more mid or long-term goals. How did you, I think it's a great question Sarantis asked, how do you talk to them about what you believe is the value? And I will, I will also say we, uh, Gary and I looked, Gary is our illustrious uh, person who, who manages our database of, of over 1,400 peer-reviewed publications. And he has seen over 84 of those are pharma-relevant publications. So there's a significant number of publications that have been, um, that have been out, put out there that, that document some value to pharma. But that's pretty recent. Uh, how did you approach them when you first came to Olink? Yeah, no, it's, it's a good question. So we can take a bit of a sidebar from the UK biobank discussion because really fundamentally drug developers are trying to bring effective therapeutics to market faster. And they also invest enormous resources into each program. And it takes what, 10 to 15 years on average, you know, to get something approved. And how many millions of dollars, right? I mean, it's just, yeah. yeah. And patients. And then what, 90, of 90% of clinical trials fail, I think, or somewhere, somewhere yeah. around there? Yeah. I, I recently had a discussion with um, an executive vice president of research at a major company who said he would be the world's best drug developer if he failed 80% Isn't of the that time. that wild? Like, if he could wow. go from failing 90% of the time, it, he would be the best. <laughs> and, and it's, right, it's just such a high attrition game. But no, so Cindy, you know, the way that a lot of people in the industry are starting to look at this is with population scale proteomics or high throughput proteomics, you can learn a lot about things you've already invested in. So let's say that you have a drug that's approved, uh, such as Impavoc, imp oh, I can never say that correctly. Jardians. Hey, let's, let's go, go with Jardians. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know. A very, very effective SGLT2 inhibitor uh, used for the treatment of you know, diabetic control. They've also noticed after having it in enough humans in the wild that there's significant benefits to heart failure. So if you can access, and this is one of the publications that, that you referenced, um, if you can access samples, right, from completed clinical trials, and most companies are sitting on these, they're just in their freezers, waiting to be analyzed if they have the exploratory consent. If you take a look at proteomics at scale from lots of humans treated in the clinical setting, you can learn a tremendous amount about why certain people respond and certain people don't, right? That's the holy grail essentially is can you proactively know which patients could go, should go, which therapy. And we often call that you stratifying patients just to use the term that we've yeah, yep. used before. Yep. They, yes, absolutely. And, you know, understanding the mechanism of these drugs, right? Because, you know, you have a target, you have a hypothesis, you test it in cell-based models, animal-based models, but you don't really have a chance to look at scale in a human population to see how it impacts the human body. So then with that data, you can A, better understand why there's this benefit in an indication for which the drug was not initially approved. You can understand, excuse me, what other pathways are being impacted by your therapeutic? Are there repurposing opportunities? Is there a way to very rapidly take this thing you've invested in, this asset, and figure out that there's more places that you could help people? There's more indications where this drug would actually be a really good fit. So that's a very short 
win, short-term win. And we've noticed multiple clients building this as a strategy um, to, to take Olink proteomics in this case, uh, to, to better understand already approved drugs, which in some ways is counterintuitive, right? I mean, ideally you'd think from the beginning, you would want to know everything yeah. you can about the drug. Um, but there's this reverse translation uh, movement that, that seems to be bearing quite a bit of fruit for the industry. That, that was actually my next, that's my next, sorry, sorry that's certainly my intriguing, this is my next question, Evan. Do you see now this trend of a strategy in the pharma with chemical because you talk with executives, right? And you know the strategy and you discuss about this. Do you see this coming? Do you see that using glycides like, proteomics, a big number of theta, to reposition the drug, for example, to identify mechanisms of action, even the late stage. And why would how, they? How is your feeling? And why would they ever yeah. publish this? Right? We think of pharma as needing to hold these things tight. So, yeah, great question, Sorantis. No, it's a good question. So the answer is yes, in pockets. I think it's just becoming a strategy for the more innovative companies. Right? There, there's always some concern, right, for ongoing trials. Do we really want to know that much at a, at a phase three, right? If we have a, a, a candidate compound, do we want to do exploratory research? Maybe we find something we can't explain. Maybe we find some safety signals. So what, what I'm describing is drugs approved. Let's extract as much value from that asset as we can. And there's definitely companies that are taking that on as a strategy. Um, and Cindy, to your point, I mean, having gotten to know folks in pharma really well for the last decade, I mean, they're great scientists. scientists. You know, I think there's this, this, I think, I mean, not to insult any of uh, my academic colleagues or people I've worked with or people that, you know, I've supported over the last you know, 20 years. I think there's incredibly talented scientists that see the opportunity to have a fast path to impact. And they do want to share. They want to publish. I mean, look at this consortium. It was 13 companies yeah. that are competitors. Coming together. I was complimenting one of the pharma researchers on a hire, a new hire uh, from academia. And she was saying they came to me because they're a physician and MD, PhD. And they said, I can help one patient at a time in my practice. But if I come here and do more um, broad based research, I can affect millions. And I was like, yeah. wow, that's. That's an interesting perspective. I like that. And it lines up with what you're saying. I think a great example of reverse translation that you've talked. I think one of the, one of the examples you've talked about in the past of, of this, you know, taking samples that are sitting in the freezer where a massive investment has been made is the one from Samina mm. Takao, uh, and, uh, and Paul Noe. Paul, of course, is, is, um, also on the UK Biobank uh, flagship paper that came out mm -hmm. last week, this week, whichever onliner you want to reference. Um, can you tell us about that example? Yeah, this is a really, really interesting story. Um, and that this originated about five years ago and was published in 2019. So it's a bit dated, but I think the, the point is incredibly powerful. So, you know, hereditary transthyretin mediated amyloidosis is a genetically defined and can disease I just say, that you really can has that, but empagliflozin is pretty darn hard. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. You know, <laughs> it just seems funny. <laughs> Jardians. Anyway, no, back to uh, back to H A T T R. Sorry, of it. <laughs> H A T T R. No, I, 
I've probably told that story more times than have. <laughs> yeah, we're talking about yeah, exactly. Oh, oh my gosh, it's hard. <laughs> so no, but so so HATTR is a really really debilitating uh, disease with a variable rate of onset. So if if in if the, her, the hereditary form it runs in your family, right? You can be screened to know if you're a carrier and know if you're at risk for the developing the disease. Alilum developed a drug, Patisseran, that is an siRNA, excuse me, RNAi based therapeutic, where they are very effective at uh, slowing the symptoms and, and helping these patients. However, even with this genetically defined population, it was hard to know when the disease was becoming active, when these patients were a good candidate for treatment. So they ran a retrospective study. This was before <clears throat> Oleg had an NGS readout, so it only measured like 1,100 proteins. And they discovered uh, neurofilament light, which is a very ubiquitous biomarker for, uh, excuse me, neuronal damage. But they found that this biomarker neurofilament light was A, indicative of disease progression, was also a biomarker of uh, efficacy. So, so after patients were treated with patisserin, uh, it dropped significantly. And it was a disease biomarker. It was four fourfold elevated in the uh, patients versus healthy controls that they measured in the study. And so now what's really interesting is there's a protein-based assay that could give treatment decision information, right? So it's being validated um, and it's only a single biomarker and it's a ubiquitous biomarker. But in this subset, you know, proteomics is giving you some actionable insights in a genetically defined population where they're now developing cutoffs to try to see, hey, if you come to your clinician and NFL is measured, and once you hit a certain cutoff, that might actually indicate, even though you don't have symptoms, the disease process has started and you are a candidate for treatment. So it's great for the patient. It's obviously great for, for alnylam so they can, you know, justify patients getting on their therapy. Um, and it was where a proteomic screen, right? They didn't know what to look for. They didn't have this hypothesis. They just wanted to see what, what's changing in these patients after treatment, what's changing over time. And I think that's a powerful way that unbiased proteomics can point us in the direction of actionable biomarkers to help patients and clinical development. So yeah, that was, that was a really interesting story. Great. Actually, I would like to go a little bit back because you mentioned about Farmine Academy. And then we know at the beginning it was really difficult to communicate, right? The two, the two worlds. They were like separated academics research versus pharmacy. Do you see this changing? And would you see a benefit of this change? Yeah, absolutely. So we just got off the phone. Uh, Cindy and I were just on a, a call with a really, really impressive uh, academic researcher who mentioned that she's on the board for two very large, important studies that are being run by pharma companies, right? She's an expert in her field and uh, she's advising on how they should spend, you know, their research dollars to, to best move, you know, very important uh, therapies through the clinic. Okay. I see it happening all the time. I mean, so, so, so our team focuses on primarily pharma and large population cohorts, right? And there's incredible connections between the two, right? Because if you think about it, if I'm a pharma company and I'm interested in atopic dermatitis, for example, it would behoove me to really profile with all these new omics technologies as many patients from the best cohorts in the world 
that have atopic dermatitis. You could do that through a population cohort and you know there's going to be some subset. What's probably more efficient is to work with, you know, KOLs in the field. Yeah. And then yeah. they've collected the samples. Yeah. You provide the resources. And then with that, right, if um, from the protein side, you could discover, yeah, are there disease progression biomarkers? Are there endotypes? Are there subphenotypes where there's slightly different molecular drivers that we could then approach with different molecular, you know, entities that we either have or that we could develop to have, you know, a higher rate of success in the class. Precision medicine. So absolutely. No. Yeah. And yeah, and that's been a term that's been really kind of reserved for oncology, right? Primarily. Yeah. Okay. And, 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 you know, I think that that's because the tools have existed at the genetic level and obviously cancer is a very genetically driven disease. But if you look at, you know, some of the more multi-system diseases that, you know, in the cardiometabolic space, yeah. um, in the autoimmune space, your proteins, I think, will be the next big thing in terms of finding signals that can uh, differentiate subtypes of patients and then give them better, better treatment options in the future. Or do you, you talk about cardiometabolic, or do you consider like a, a blockbuster kind of disease you, you see now? Pharma investing more on this or uh, expanding all these research because uh, for me, it's the impression that we are moving a bit far away without, of course, leaving behind the traditional type. If we can say disease like cancer, I see that now farmers, they are going to rare disease, they are going to cardiometabolic disease, they are going to obesity, like a disease. What is your feeling? Well, what is the growth pass in the upcoming years in the farm? I mean, without getting too philosophical about why, you know, the GLP-1, GIP-1, the, you know, the, all the Lilly and Novo competition and others, and you know, there's Pfizer and a lot of other companies are getting involved, right? There's just a huge societal issue with obesity and there's enormous amounts of investment happening in that field. I do think that um, there's a bit of a gold rush right now, but scientifically, what's really interesting is, you know, it's not just about obesity. Uh, I've, I've been fortunate enough to talk to some of the, the, the leadership at these companies who are really trying to develop the next, you know, Munjuro, uh, the next semaglutide. And what they're noticing is there's so many knock-on benefits and there's so many, yeah. you know, benefits to multimorbidity that they want to both understand you know, at the molecular level, what's driving that? But also understand, you know, are there patients who have a more aggressive form of obesity, for lack of a better term, right? Is there a subtype of patients that really need 30% weight loss or 40% weight loss? Um, so it's, it's a fascinating effort. And I mean, given the reality that it's a very environmentally driven condition, proteomics, I think, will, will be an indispensable tool. I mean, again, the other day talking to, you know, a KOL in the space saying these companies and, and society generally says, well, let's do genomics first, right? Yeah. Like we have all these samples. We're going to just do whole genome sequencing and see if there's some sort of signal in the genetics that's going to help us answer these questions. And, and they're starting to say, hey, wait a second. Like there's these proteomic tools now that don't you think it makes more sense in obesity to, to, to look at the proteins and they're dynamic and you can look at multiple time points and see what's changing post-treatment, et cetera, et cetera. So it's just an interesting side note that um, 
in this field, I think proteomics is going to be particularly valuable. And I just want to define a couple of terms. So KOL is key opinion leader. We use that a lot, uh, lingo around here. People that are that are driving and influencing uh, uh, decisions that are happening out in the field, particularly, you know, we are thinking in terms of genetics and proteomics. And then the the semaglutide and these GLP-1 agonists that that Evan mentioned are not only relevant in obesity, but they're actually being almost um, prescribed uh, where people pay out of pocket in some offerings. So I've I've met people that are that are really keen to be on them or are on them and have had a lot of success in in reducing their um, maybe not in the you know, uh, obese category, but an overweight category where, again, you can expect, based on what we've seen, health benefits there as well. So I just wanted to throw that in. Really interesting space, right? Yeah. And yeah, maybe also uh, on that note, a lot of these drugs and a lot of these inhibitors, as you mentioned, Evan, they are, they are influenced more than one disease, right? They are, they are targeting more than one. Movie. And I think that's also where some of them like to know to have a drug more than one disease. Is that my feeling or have you seen this happening from your perspective? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, it's, then that's where the deeper understanding of the mechanism of these drugs, right? Which, which, you know, yes, there are great model systems that, you know, and if you, using a, a sino model, uh, monkey model, you know, eventually mouse models, rat models, you know, there's all kinds of models and you can get a good sense of how your drug's behaving. But, you know, often with these phase one or phase two studies, the, the, the amount of patients is fairly small. Um, you can get, you can get an idea, but that's why I do, I, I believe that, you know, companies are investing significant resources to, to look at the bigger studies, right? Because you can just see, you just get more statistical power. You have a better chance of really understanding how my drug's impacting multiple pathways, multiple organ systems. And then once you have that knowledge, it just makes you so much better informed for new therapeutic, you know, ideas, uh, even just repurposing the existing therapeutics. So yes, Sorrentis, I mean, there's, uh, the, the more indications, the better, yeah. right? I mean, just from a simple, pragmatic business perspective, but having the molecular, you know, justification, I think is, is what as a society we should all ask for. Right. I mean, just seems to be what, what they, especially when we're consenting in all of us, if we're, you know, participants in these sorts of trials, I think another promise here, Mm. and we're going into ASHG soon, uh, and we've got 25 different posters of folks leveraging, uh, leveraging some proteomics from from Olink, which is really exciting to see. This is a genetics conference and clearly there's there's this value of layering the the genetics onto the prote- or the proteomics onto the genetics. There's also seven talks that doesn't include the talks that we're um that we're sponsoring. So uh I think in this in this environment I guess I'm I'm wondering what's the what are you what are you most excited about, Evan? Sorry, I just <laughs> no, that's fine. I mean, it's it's a hard question. Um, let's just let's just talk about this environment being the fact that there were three publications in Nature, yeah. right? Three publications that just dropped about the promise of population yeah. proteomics, right? Yeah. So, I mean, 
I just think it's the beginning, right? So 50,000 samples from a largely Northern European cohort has led to a treasure trove of insights, right? 14,000 associations, 80 plus percent of which were novel. People can dig into that for a long time. And reference back to um, it with their own studies to uh, yeah, that's a great to point. corroborate that's the signals point. that yeah. they're seeing. I think we've, we've talked about that before. Yeah, go ahead, Evan. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's super exciting, right? Because that will provide a bit of a backbone to understand causality and give us insights into drug targets and biomarkers. That's great. You know, but it's just a small subset of the world's available resources from a cohort perspective. So there's enormous benefit to going bigger as the AstraZeneca uh, rare variant paper shows, right? The, to capture these rare variants. And, and this is what, you know, Regeneron Genetic Center has done for years, right? They're doing genomics on all of these very large populations, these founder populations to find these signals that really come out when you go big. That will happen at the protein level yeah. as well. Um, I think going to different parts of the world, right? There's just going to be enormous richness uh, as we go from act. Without question, everyone wants to do that. But if you say the thing I'm most excited about, to be honest, is proteomic risk scores and the potential for a whole suite of tools to help perhaps, you know, consumers one day, certainly drug developers, perhaps health insurance companies. I think who knows where this all goes, but, you know, speaking to Ben's son and some of the head analysts from the UK Biobank project, they, with just 50,000 samples are, and machine learning and AI-based algorithms, are able to pick up on these patterns, right, of sometimes a small number of proteins. I, I believe Claudia Langenberg and uh, Robert Scott had a paper where it was between like five and 20 proteins could distinguish your risk of a large number of common diseases. I think once those are validated and those are refined, that is a game changer because then if I'm a drug developer, I can apply these algorithms to all my clinical trials and better understand, hey, are we on the right track? And what other impacts are we having on a wide range of diseases? I mean, I, to me, that's incredibly exciting. And it's not without its challenges, right? I mean, you have to validate these things in sufficiently uh, statistically powered studies. Um, but one could imagine that there could be a suite of tools in the future based on, you know, a manageable number of measurements that could be used clinically. And that's where I think the next big evolution will be is taking this data that's been generated by either academic funding, pharma funding, government funding, to really look at a lot of diseases at the protein level at scale using these new proteomic technologies and then whittling it down to things that are clinically actionable that you would have never found if you didn't take a, a broader view, right? I think that's yeah. the difference. And just you know? to double click on those authors. So there's Ryan Dehenza on this uh, rare variant paper. He's the first author. He's at Baylor working also with AstraZeneca. Uh, where Slave Petrovsky is the is the the PI on that paper. There's the Ben Sun who you mentioned uh, and Chris Whelan paper. That's our flagship paper. We 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 consider it sort of the the broadest group from the UK Biobank Pharma Proteomics Project. And then of course the I want to um, also just touch on uh, Grimmer uh, Elvarn and 
Kauri Stefanson's uh, uh, paper, well, if if only to to highlight some something Kauri said about proteomics in general, and that was along the lines of what you're describing that proteomics that that an algorithm they've been able to develop with proteomics can predict all cause mortality in any individual. So how many years does one have left to live, right? So if I go into a clinical trial and I've got a prediction of 30 years left to live, and then I go on to this drug and partway through that trial, or maybe three quarters of the way through that trial, you look at my proteomics score uh, on my prediction on my, how long do I have to live? This is a way to have have very short clinical trials that actually are representative of a longer period. I mean, imagine a depression trial. I remember there was there was one trial on depression. It was something like six weeks, right? If you're talking about major depressive disorder, a six-week window is a hard one to draw conclusions from, uh, and we do the best we can. But having something like this that is is a reflection in the future of what this is doing to your proteins, I think is very exciting. I, I mean, yeah, I'm, just, I'm, I'm thinking about the air, that's mean, let's say there's the air for the omics version, big data generation for biomarker discovery, right? Then what is coming next? They vitro that not to get a booming, for example, then some of these biomarkers be like, customized and used for clinical diagnosis. How, how will you see this, this, this roadmap? I know it's, it's difficult to predict, but will you see this coming actually from your perspective? I think so. I think so. And, and Cindy's point, I think is really, I, so I just sort of touch on that real quick and then, then I'll touch on that sir, just because they're certainly connected, but, but slightly different in, in, in my view. So, so this idea of having a risk score to help, you know, shorten a trial, right? give you some sort of a surrogate endpoint or some sort of early read. I, I mean, I remember, you know, Cowrie in, in a, I believe in a presentation he gave mentioning that, you know, if, if you could apply this, you know, risk score, you could cut the time of a cardiovascular outcomes trial, you know, significantly, I think by more than half and save hundreds of millions of dollars. Right. And I think broadly that that would help everybody because the, you know, companies developing therapeutics would not have to spend so much money. It would be less expensive and the right patients would get, you know, the right drug because they're at higher risk if you use an enrichment strategy. So I think that's absolutely coming. There's no doubt about it. But then, you know, the, the real end game, I think, Sorensis is, is what you've referred to in terms of this in vitro diagnostics piece. You know, so I, I was recently visit, visiting Roche Diagnostics, you know, in, in Basel and they're, you know, world leaders in diagnostic tests and by and large today, it's a single plex assay, yeah. right? You measure it in one thing. Yeah. And there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, it's challenging to have uh, multiplexed assays validated to the level that today we're used to, you know, being required from the FDA and others, but biologically and just, you know, if, if you just think about the complexity of disease, a single marker is probably not the best thing to do. So I do think that's coming. And I hope in the rest of my career, I, I have a, a role to play in that because if we can have very predictive multi-marker tests yeah. to be used in the diagnostic space, that to me will be the biggest 
societal benefit that can come from all of the amazing work that's happening right now. I think that that's where this all goes. Um, and I just, you can just imagine a future where there's much more resolution to your personal risk for disease, your personal response to therapies, uh, that we just don't see today. So yeah, I think, I think that's where it goes. It's a hard road. Well, but, but we're already <laughs> seeing multi-gene tests in cancer, right? And stratifying and diagnosing to help better serve cancer patients. So I think, and, and yet there's still a lot to be done there. And I think, you know, the, the, um, pan cancer study that came out of Matea Sulin's uh, team, which we've talked about on the podcast before is a great, um, a great place where proteomics is is making inroads. So yeah, yeah, fantastic. Also, to add on that, it's like as you said that one one biomarker is something nothing. We have a lot of examples in papers in knowing right where so additive value, prognostic value of having more than one biomarker. They are really great from Pfizer ads, mentioned and you know there are plenty of papers that show that this additive value. And I think slowly the community start realizing this that having more than one biomarker increase there. Yeah. Yeah. And and it really, it just depends on who you're talking to in terms of what they think the next big thing is, right? You asked for my opinion. I gave you my opinion, you know, (laughs) so someone else could say, Hey, I I just want to measure 10, you know, million samples. And then we're going to get much richer insights into the next best drug targets. And then that's going to create more efficient pipelines and a better, you know, drug development universe in the next 50 years. And yes, I think that'll happen yeah. too. Uh, but, but you know, there's, there's just on all ends of the drug development spectrum, these innovations, you know, that Olink and others have made, I think are really, really going to be transformative and they already are, they already are, but it's, it's so early. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm sorry, yeah. I just, not to go on a tangent, but like it really is yeah. early, Yeah, you know, and, and part of, you know, with, with, whole genome sequencing, right? The, the, the cost dropping has really enabled things. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's an important point. To be honest, it really is. And so, you know, if we're just going to be frank and honest about, you know, the opportunities to help as many people as possible, if a tool is prohibitively expensive, it's never going to have broad adoption, you know? And when I joined Olink, uh, things cost a certain amount of money and now things cost less. Like it's definitely, and we get more. Yeah, there's been <laughs> we get more from it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. There's there's more data coming out for a lower a lower cost, right? Mm-hmm. And that's that's what the that's what the market has expected. That's what people you know are are demanding. And again, that's very hard. It takes a lot of innovation. It takes a lot of innovation. But you know, that's I believe I'm I'm excited to be here because I know that the mission is the democratization of proteomics to get. To just get it out there, get it in the hands of the best and the and brightest. All the great analysts um, so out they, there, right? All of the great big data yeah. folks who have developed such yeah. great tools in that genetic space. And and I'll also say, you know, when you were talking to Chris Whelan well before this whole UKB PPP project um, came to fruition, there was no guarantee that Olink was going to be yeah. the chosen technology. It's it's such an honor that the tools and the and the priorities that we've uh, thought were important, specificity, all that, uh, that those were also important and continue to be very important to pharma. And I'll, and then the, and then I, I'm going to also just point out that we're now at, uh, just as of this year at about 5,400 proteins and, uh, and, a, a really increased, um, 
streamlined workflow, increased throughput capability, which is uh, very exciting to see too. Any last, yeah, and any last know. comments? Yeah, yeah please I, go I, ahead, Evan. No, no, I will. And I hope this, I hope I can say this because, you know, I'm an Olink employee and but this is a proteomics and proximity uh, podcast, right? So I, I just, I do think that there's going to be multiple tools eventually that are going to answer these questions, right? I mean, I'm not so myopic as to think that Olink is the only tool out there. Um, I think we have some really compelling attributes for the large scale projects and for these large clinical analyses. But I get excited about continued innovation across, you know, the earlier side of the research spectrum where there could be tools that can rapidly tell you about all these different proteoforms and uh, phosphorylation states. And yeah, it's, it's a community, right. That's coming together. And I I think that, um, you know, there's just so, there's so much has happened in the last, you know, decade that I've really been focused in the space and it's going to, it's going to continue to, to, to evolve. And, um, I'm grateful that, you know, we've, we've gotten 13 companies together to do something really big. Uh, we continue to be integrally in, integrally involved in the strategy of, you know, drug development from a large number of the world's best companies. And I just think that it's all leading to a more efficient process, right? I mean, I, I have X number of years on this planet. I want my time to be spent, you know, making a difference to, for my kids and their kids. And I truly believe that this kind of work is, is going to enable that. So I'm, I'm, thank you for oh, having our me on. Our pleasure. Sarantis, any, great. yeah, any last words from you? No, I mean, it was, it was great. I think Evan, it was great to hear your, your perspective. And I, uh, I agree with you. I think the proteomics is, is going to lead the research from now on. And we're going to see a lot of papers you hear by bank is only the beginning. And uh, we are looking forward to upcoming, upcoming uh, projects actually. Fantastic. Well, that's it for us today. Again, thank you, Evan, for joining us. I also want to thank you very much. Yeah, I, I think thank there's you. a couple of authors we we may not have said clearly, and that was Fayez Zanad, who who was integral in this, uh, and Milton Packer. I don't think we mentioned Milter Milton, who uh, both were integral in in really understanding and repurposing, identifying repurposing opportunities in the in MPAG flows in PAG. Lefflozen. Oh, Anyway, uh, yeah, so I just wanted to click on those and, and, and we'll put those into the show notes as well. Thanks as always to my co-host Sarantis. If you enjoyed, you, yeah, of course, if you enjoyed listening to Proteomics in Proximity, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think might also enjoy it. M- maybe we'll get more than 11 listeners. We'll see. And remember, you can reach out to us at Proteomics in Proximity uh, at PIP at olink.com. And, you know, anything, any feedback, positive, negative, uh, what, who should we interview? We would be grateful for the suggestions and the feedback. And, uh, and with that, we'll close. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Proteomics in Proximity podcast, brought to you by Olink Proteomics. To contact the hosts or for further information, simply email info at olink.com. Hold up.